Thank you, Pastor Mike and Colleen and Jill. We rejoice and celebrate with you. You know it's a good baptism when you see the toes come up. It's just, you, you, know, you, you know you've done it well. What we are so grateful. Hey, we're kicking off a new series today in the Old Testament book of Joshua. Why Joshua? And because in this extraordinary book, we get to see how the people of God begin again. The story of the book of Joshua is the story of the Israelites' second chance to enter the land of promise that God had given them. It's the story of how they try to get it right the second time. It's the story of a new beginning. In a moment, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the table of contents. I don't think I've ever begun a sermon that way, inviting people to look at the table of contents of their Bibles. But before you do, and you can begin to even flip there right now, I also, also want to ask you to believe with me that God is the God of new beginnings. He is the God of a new beginning in your life, in your family, maybe in your job, in our church. Maybe you are in need of a new beginning right now. Whatever you want to call it, whether it's a fresh start or a do-over, you need the opportunity to begin again. A new beginning means that your, your past mistakes do not define you. It means that your failures do not have the final word. It means that old regrets no longer have the power to prevent forward progress. And as we begin this series this morning and launch it in the book of Joshua, maybe for some of you, this series will be the opportunity to respond to Jesus' offer of new life, to be, as he put it, born again, to be born from above, to experience a second birth, a spiritual birth, the kind of birth that Colleen and Jill just gave testimony to. Maybe for others, this will be the opportunity for you to rediscover the power of the gospel in your life, maybe new steps of gospel obedience in your own life, maybe a new chapter for you after we have walked through this global pandemic together. Whatever it is, whatever challenge you are facing, this can be a new beginning for you and for me. As long as you are willing to say, I don't want to go back to the person I was, and I don't want to stay where I am. I want to be where and all God wants me to be. This can be a new beginning for you. Now, this offer of a fresh start does come with the qualifier. There is no moving forward without great faith and an intense effort. To believe that Jesus can give you new life is is to place all of the weight of your life and all that you are upon him and him alone. No other option, no other kind of safety net. It's casting all that you are upon him, knowing that he is enough. He is enough to rescue you. He is enough to redeem you. He is enough to save you, to forgive you all of your sins, to give you a new start, and to live for Jesus means every single day saying no to the sin that so easily entangles. So if you feel trapped by poor choices, if you are still chained to old habits and addictions, 
or just plain stuck, whatever it is, let this be a new beginning for you. Now that you have Bibles open, perhaps, to the table of contents, look at the list. Beginning right there at the top, you'll see Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those first five books of the Old Testament, those first five books of the Bible are known as the Pentateuch. That's a, that's a big word that simply means five books. The Jewish people call these five books the Torah which means instruction or teaching or the law. They were written by Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They are some of the most important sections of the the Bible for, for the Jewish people. Then comes Joshua, the sixth book of the Bible. In our English Bibles, Joshua is the first historical book, of which there are 12 historical books. That's a category of books in the Old Testament, running from First Joshua all the way through the book of Esther. And it might be helpful for you just to know that as you begin reading from Joshua on through those 12 historical books, most of the narrative, the majority of it, is in chronological order. Not all of the books of the Old Testament are, but these historical books are. That's important because they really trace the the history of the Israelites for about a thousand years from roughly 1400 B.C. to to 500 B.C., and it is the beginning again of the historical section Joshua is of the Old Testament. Now, it's also interesting that in the Hebrew Bible, the book of Joshua is considered the first prophetic book, and that's significant because to the Hebrew mind, the book of Joshua captured Great historical events which revealed important theological truths. In other words, the book of Joshua is theological history. Not everything that is that could be described and how the Israelites took the promised land is written in this book. But the points that are, the truths that are, Give us a sense of redemptive history, of God working his will and his purpose in the lives of his people. Now, the book of Joshua has 24 chapters, or 658 verses. 279 of those verses describe the conquest of the land and its astonishing victories and the epic failures experienced by the people of Israel. 293 of its verses are devoted to the listing of names, to the distribution of land, to the allocation of property. It's sort of like the zoning chapters for the tribes of Israel. If you've read through the book of Joshua, you know that there's a lot of information about that. So in this series, we're going to be primarily looking at that first section of verses, those 279 verses that make up the historical narrative. We will, in the end, only be studying about half of the book itself. But we're going to be studying some amazing parts because the book of Joshua is just a really amazing book to read. So many themes in this book, but let me highlight three critical, three essential themes that we will explore further and even more themes as we move along. But three, these three are foundational. Number one, this book is about God the Father. I think we need to say that about every book. That's not the most obvious thing to say, and so we need to say it. 
God is the hero of every book of the Bible, and especially the book of Joshua. It is about his character, his faithfulness, and how he keeps his promises. Do you ever wonder if God's word and what he says can be counted on? Do you ever question whether or not God's promises are good? Is he faithful all of the time? And what I love about the book of Joshua is that he, he affirms not only that God's word is his bond, that, but that we can trust him to do exactly what God has promised to do. Every promise he has made, if, even if he has made those promises a hundred or more years ago, even in this story, is as good as gold. This book is about God. Secondly, this book is about God the Son, Jesus. Jesus is really not hard for us to find in the book of Joshua because every time you see the name Joshua, which is Hebrew for Yeshua, you are reading the name Jesus. Transliterated into the, into the Greek and spoken in our, in our English language, Jesus is the same name as Joshua. It means he saves. So every time we come across the name of Joshua in this book, we will, we will be reading and talking about a person who is pointing us to Jesus. There is a sense in which Joshua is a type or a picture of Christ. And it is also the story that, of course, leads to the impeccable story of Jesus himself. But as we read through this book together, we will look for those signs that point to our Savior. And then thirdly, this book is about the Christian life. It's a template for how we live for God in this world. Israel's gradual possession of the land of Canaan is a paradigm of the Christian life. Over the centuries, many believers have understood that the land of Canaan was a picture of heaven to which all Christians are heading after we pass through this world. So that in some hymns, especially in those great spirituals crossing, the Jordan River was akin to walking into Canaan, which is heaven itself. I think of the hymn on Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a wishful eye to where my possessions lie. I am bound for the promised land. I am bound for the promised land. Oh, who will come and go with me? I am bound for the promised land. Or maybe sweet Canaan land, the old spiritual that said, Canaan, sweet Canaan, I'm bound for the land of Canaan. Sweet Canaan, tis my happy home. I am bound for the land of Canaan. Canaan has been at times a picture of what Christians will experience. But it is not a picture of the heaven to come. Heaven is our inheritance, don't get me wrong. That's where we are going. But Canaan isn't so much a picture of heaven as much as it is life in the here and now. The land of Canaan was God's gift to the Israelites. And yet seven powerful nations were already living there so that the Israelites had to fight in order to take possession of it. So Canaan is about living in this world for God as Christians. Salvation is a free gift of God. We can't buy it, we can't earn it, we can't work for it. But having been redeemed, as we enter into all that God has for us, Canaan is a picture of us, again, living and fighting the fight of faith every single day. To take full possession of what God has for us 
in Christ. And our journey through this life will not be without pain. We wish it were so, but God rescues us, and then he keeps us in this world in order to live for him, no matter how difficult it may be. Because if you haven't noticed, this world is not a friend to the people of faith. So in order to experience more of what God wants us to have, we need to fight by faith. There is a discouraging view among some Christians that this life is just one depressing defeat after another. And then finally, we get to go to heaven. But that's not true. Just listen to these two verses. The first is Isaiah 64, verse 4, that says, From of old no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. First Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9 says, But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Those two verses aren't talking about our inheritance in heaven, but about the victory and possession of God's promises today. I love that phrase in Isaiah 64, a God who acts for those who wait for him. So again, the book of Joshua sets before us this template. It's a paradigm for the victory that God has in store for his people. Now, as we come to the book of Joshua, I just can't drop you into 1500 B.C. this morning without giving you some context. So let's go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, where God made a covenant with Abraham that included a large parcel of land known as the land of Canaan. That's where Abraham moved from southern Iraq all the way up to the land of Canaan. It's where he lived for the rest of his life. He and his wife Sarah and Isaac were all buried in the land of Canaan. The next generation after Abraham, Abraham's descendants, leave Canaan and go down to Egypt to find food during a famine. That's Jacob and Jacob's sons. And what was to be just a brief sojourn in the country of Egypt ended up or ended up being a time where they were forced into slavery, a time of oppression by the Egyptians against the Israelites for 400 years. And then in the greatest miracle of the Old Testament, Moses led the people of Israel out of Egypt through the parting of the Red Sea. You know the fantastic story. And then just a few months after they have passed through the Red Sea on dry ground, they wander, they walk through the wilderness, and they come to the border of the Promised Land, right there at the Jordan River. Moses sends 12 men out, men who were representatives one each from the tribes of Israel to conduct surveillance, to gather intelligence about the nature of the land. When they returned, you know the story, 10 of those spies said that they they were scared to go in because they would be unable to topple the fortified kingdoms of the Canaanites that were there. The inhabitants of the land, they said, were like giants, and we were like grasshoppers in their eyes. So they stumbled at the border of the land of Canaan, because of a lack of faith. Only two men, Joshua and Caleb, those were the two men who came back saying, hey, we can take this land. We, buy, we believe the promises of God. We're ready to go in. But the rest of the Israelites grumbled and complained. They demanded a new leader. God's response to them was quick and decisive. He mandated 
that the Israelites then spend another 38 and a half years just wandering around the wilderness until that entire generation of unbelieving Israelites perished in the wilderness. A conservative estimate would say that maybe 1.2 million Israelites left Egypt. And even if that number, which is fairly low, was true, that during those 38 and a half years, there was an average of 85 to 86 people dying every day until the adults of that generation perished all again except for Joshua and Caleb. So now we finally come to Joshua chapter 1. The year is 1406 B.C. At the beginning of the book in chapter 1 of Joshua, Israel is again on the eastern side of the Jordan River. By the end of the book in chapter 24, all of the tribes are in their allotted territories. As we'll see, two and a half of those tribes are still living on the eastern side because they were given permission by God and by Moses to dwell there. But the story in between chapter 1 and verse tw- or in chapter 24 is the story of a God who keeps his word. It's the story of how the Israelites enter the land of promise and take possession of it. And it is an exciting story filled with astonishing miracles, memorable characters, colossal victories, epic collapses, the sun halting in the sky. All of the events that take place in the book of Joshua are true. It's a great story. So the Israelites are standing on the threshold of their future in much of the same way as we are. And today, wherever you are, you move either forward by faith or you will stumble back in fear. But today can be a new day, a new start. And by faith, it's time for us to take the next step. And it comes down to the kind of choice you really need to make if you're going to live in victory. You may be facing opposition. There may be forces against you. Living for God in this strange and bizarre world will will provoke the same kind of opposition that Joshua faced. Opposition doesn't mean that you're moving in the wrong place. It's inevitable. But we take faith, we, we bank our life upon the promises of God and move forward. Then the opening scene of the book of Joshua here in chapter 1, verse 1, picks up where the book of, book of Deuteronomy left off on a rather sober note of the death of Moses. And so we begin After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Moses was a remarkable man, probably one of the greatest men who ever lived. And when he he died, the nation felt his death deeply. He had led them for four decades. Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse 8 says, And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab for 30 days. Great grief, great loss. But there's something here that we need to remember, and that is that when God's, when God's leaders die, God's promises continue. Nothing stops the movement of God. At the base of a monument to Charles Wesley in Westminster Abbey in London, there's an inscription that reads, God buries his workmen, but he carries on his work. 
So it's time now for a new leader to be appointed. And God's succession plan was clear. There were no other nominees in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 38. God had told Moses to encourage Joshua, for he shall cause Israel to inherit the land. Joshua had been serving by Moses' side for 40 years. Now it was time for him to step out of Moses' shadow and lead. God had placed the mantle upon Joshua. When Churchill assumed the prime ministership of of England in May of 1940, he said about that, I felt as if I were walking with destiny and that all my past life had been but preparation for this hour and for this trial. That was Joshua. He had been preparing for this moment for decades. But let's stop for just a moment and ask ourselves exactly who was Joshua. We need to be reminded because he was a He was born a slave in Egypt, a member of the tribe of Ephraim. He was the firstborn of a man by the name of Nun, N-U-N. There's an old Bible joke that goes something like this, who is the only man born in the Bible without an earthly father besides Adam and Jesus? And the answer is Joshua, the son of Nun. That's Bible humor. It doesn't get any better than that. I mean, that's that's hilarious, right? But think about this. Joshua was a firstborn son living in Egypt when Moses sent a directive throughout the Israelite community that each home was to sacrifice a lamb and take its blood and to spread it over the doorposts of their home so that when the angel of death and the 10th plague came through, it would see the blood over the doorpost of each of those homes and pass over. That happened in Joshua's home. He was the firstborn. He would have been slated to die. His father took the blood and spread it over the doorpost of the home. The angel of death did not visit that home. So Joshua had a personal and a profound awareness of God's redeeming and rescuing grace. He, he lived in the reality of that every single day of his life. So that Numbers chapter 27 verse 18 said of Joshua that he was a man of whom was the Spirit, capital S. Not too many people in the Old Testament are described that way, but Joshua is. We know that also Joshua's father was a grand, his grandfather was a captain in Israel's army. He marched near the front of Israel's army during the Exodus. And we also know that that passed on down to, to Joshua himself, who has been fighting the battles of Israel all the way back since Exodus chapter 17. So now, at the end of the wilderness wanderings, having been serving as Moses' assistant for 40 years, Joshua now stands with the people of God on the edge of the promised land. He's at least 60 years of age. Some say he is old as 80. Tells me God still loves to use young and old. He loves to use octogenarians. I can remember riding in the car one day with a man in a previous ministry, and he was behind the wheel of the car, and he looked at me and pointed at me with his finger, and he looked at, he said, Paul, don't put me on the shelf. God still wants to use us every single day of our lives. Franklin Roosevelt died from a cerebral hemorrhage at 3.30 p.m. on April 12, 1945. 
Two hours later, Eleanor, his, his wife, greeted Vice President Truman, who had not heard the news yet, and a calm Eleanor said to him, Harry, the president is dead. Truman asked if there was anything that he could do for her, to which she replied, is there anything that I can do for you? For you are the one in trouble now. Joshua, if you will, is the one in trouble now. He has to lead the Israelites over the Jordan River and into the promised land. But God wasn't informing Joshua about something he didn't know and had not prepared for, but still he felt overwhelmed. He knew how stiff-necked, he knew how cranky the Israelites could be. He knew that nothing had changed on the other side of of the Jordan from 40 years before. The seven fortified nations of the Canaanites were still imposing. The double walled city of of Jericho still looked invincible. There were still giants in the land, but Joshua was the one in charge now. It would take blood and sweat and tears to inherit the land. They had to fight for what God promised. And so that brings us to verse 5 of chapter 1. Listen to what God promises Joshua, beginning with what we can call God's charge to him. No man, verse 5 says, shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you be strong and courageous? Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Oh, what great words. What great words Joshua needed to hear because the conquest of the land of Canaan seemed daunting, if not impossible. So three times in that paragraph, God tells Joshua, be strong and courageous. In verse 6, be strong and courageous. In verse 7, only be strong and very courageous. And again in verse 9, be strong and courageous. Now to whom do you say those kinds of things? Do you say those things to somebody who has, in his own ubris, full confidence in whatever he or she does? Do you say it to a person who just has that ego that says, I can do anything? Or do you say it to the person who's trembling? Do you say it to the person who feels inadequate? Do you say it to the person who is facing opposition? Maybe someone who is being mocked for what they believe. God says to you, If any of that fits you, today be strong and courageous. The word courage means to be resolute, to be unyielding in your love for God and for his word and for his people. Being resolute is necessary when what God says in his word and what the winds of the time are saying and blowing, when they're in conflict with one another, it takes courage, it takes someone who is resolute to live for him. 
Courage is standing on the Lord's side when you may be the only one. Courage is one of the most needed virtues of faith today. And we know that if we're going to move forward, if we're going to get off the edge, if we're going to get off the border and move ahead, if we're going to cross the street or cross the river or cross man-made boundaries that await us, it's going to require courage. So where does courage come from? Well, that paragraph tells us. Notice several things with me. First of all, courage comes from an unwavering confidence in the promises of God. Courage comes from an unwavering confidence in the promises of God. We can even back up to verse 3, then through verse 5, so that the things that God says to Joshua here are just promise-saturated. Read the promises of God. Hold to them. And here are the three promises that God commits himself to in these verses. First of all, he promises the fullest extent of the land. God just didn't want his people to to occupy a postage stanch of property in the land of Canaan. No, he wanted them to have borders that stretch from the Mediterranean Sea all the way to the river Euphrates. Look at verse 4. From the wilderness in this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to, to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. In political boundaries today, and you know this map in your own head because you've seen it so many times, this would include modern Israel, all of Jordan, a large part of Saudi Arabia, half of Iraq, the whole of Lebanon, part of Syria, and all of Kuwait. That was God's promise to Joshua for the extent of the land. God says, I am giving it to you. God's promise included not only the size of land, but also victory over his enemies. Verse 5, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. And then thirdly, God promised to be with him. To believe in God's promises is to live in hope. Christians ought to be the most hopeful people on the planet. And yet I'm afraid that sometimes we come across as the most pessimistic, wringing our hands, full of anxiety. We should be filled with hope. Why? Because God is faithful. Because he keeps his word. He's faithful to his promises. God never stutters and says, I didn't mean to say that. His promises may not always be fulfilled in our lifetime. God doesn't always immediately answer every prayer you pray. And there are reasons for that. But God's word, God's promises are good. They can be counted upon. Courage comes, first of all, from an unwavering confidence in the promises of God. Secondly, notice that courage comes from an unblinking certainty of God's presence. He says at the end of verse 5, Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. The end of verse 9, Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. He sees Joshua's knees knocking and says, For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. The experience of his abiding presence means that we belong to him and nothing will ever separate us from his love. All the promise of Jesus, nothing will be able to snatch us out of his hands. 
It means that we can know him and know his nearness to us, no matter how dark the night, no matter how perilous the circumstances, no matter how powerful the opposition may be. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 6 says, I will never let go of you. I will never abandon you. As Christians, we need to cultivate a sixth sense of the presence of God. A sixth sense. Not the Bruce Willis film, but a sixth sense of the presence of God. To know his nearness, to feel it, to count on it, to have an unblinking certainty of it. Elizabeth Barrett Browning wrote years ago, Earth is crammed with heaven and every common bush aflamed with God, but only those who see take off their shoes. The rest just sit around and pluck blackberries. Develop that sixth sense of knowing with unblinking certainty that God is with you. And then finally, courage comes from unswerving obedience to God's word. Obedience. Verse 7 again. Let me read 7, 8, and 9 because they're such good verses. Some of you maybe have even put these words to memory. But he says again to Joshua, only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall, what? Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Courage comes from unswerving obedience to God's Word. And this begins with knowing His Word. I I love that word, meditate. It means to mutter over it. Just talking about it, mumbling it, muttering it, chewing over it, thinking about it, knowing what God requires, how often? Day and night. Meditate on his word day and night. To be careful to do according to all the parts that are written in it, and it takes courage to do that. So we need to know God's word, therefore read it day and night, meditate on it day and night, thinking about it and then living according to it, because there is a catch. And here's one of the most important things I think that we can communicate about living a life of of obedience to, to God, that the actualization of God's word depends upon our obedience, choosing to be obedient. We will see that though the tribes possessed the land, all 12 tribes were settled, The conquest was incomplete. They didn't have the borders that were promised in verse 4. Why? Because of disobedience. So the same disease that afflicted the previous generation and their grandparents' generation also afflicted this generation. We miss out in the very same way on the vast potential of God's grace because of disobedience. We have less of God than what He promises to us because of a lack of faith, a failure to obey. 
So a life of long obedience in the right direction is your path to victorious living. And it is the God, as we sang this morning, who is the one who always gives victory, but he gives victory to those who are fully surrendered to him. So again, know his word. Make it a part of your daily life. Meditate over it. Think about it. Be obedient to it. And all the study and all the knowledge of God's word is absolutely, absolutely means nothing unless you do what it says. Choose obedience. Now, the second half of chapter 1 consists of Joshua's charge to the people and then the people's response to Joshua. Let me just read this section for you, beginning in verse 10. And Joshua commanded the officers of the people, pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, prepare your provisions for within three days. We're going to get there in just a little while, two weeks from today. For within three days, you're to pass over this Jordan to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God has given you to possess. And to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word that, that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. So that's the east of the Jordan. Two and a half tribes settled there. But all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers, and shall help them until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you. And they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. So you go over, you fight for them, and then you can go home. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it, the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. Joshua charges the military commanders who charge the people, and then the people respond to Joshua. Verse 16. And they answered him, all that you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go, just as we obeyed Moses in all things. If you know your Old Testament, you can't have help but laugh at that. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. They questioned that too. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you command him shall be put to death. A preview of coming attractions. Only, and I love this though, the people then say to him, be strong and courageous. What is courage? Courage is doing the right thing even when it's hard. Courage is fleeing from what is wrong when temptation knocks. Courage is is standing on God's word. Even when you know you do so, your reputation may be smeared in the eyes of some. But above all, courage is living like Jesus. It's serving when you want to be served. It's giving yourself away when you want to hold everything close. It's, It's praying for your enemies. It's laying your life down for others. It's the courage to love like Jesus loves. That's courage, living like Christ. During the commemoration of the 20th anniversary of 9-11 last week, Peggy Noonan, writing for the Wall Street Journal, told the story of, of Wells Crowther. Maybe you saw her column or remember the story, but on 9-11, Wells was just starting out as a junior associate at an investment bank on the 104th floor of the South Tower. 
And he always carried in his back pocket to work a red bandana. And all of his office colleagues sort of picked on him for it. What are you, a farmer or something? They joked. And he'd laugh and and show some bravado and say, with this bandana, I'm going to change the world. And that day as the world exploded, he did. He led people to safety. He carried them down to lower floors, and then he went back for more. And the entire time, he's got that red bandana covering his nose and his mouth. He never came home from the towers that day. His parents were anguished, hoping against hope. And then one day, three days later, his mother said that while she was sitting in their home in Nyack, she just sensed his presence in the room that he had come to say goodbye, and she thanked him for it, though she couldn't see him, but she knew then that he was gone. Months of mourning and no word exactly on how he died, and then on Memorial Day weekend, 2002, eight and a half months later, the New York Times had a story about a man who in the last minutes of the towers was helping survivors get to the bottom into safety, a man who had a red bandana over his nose and mouth. He saved them. And his mother just knew it was him. And she got a picture of his son, and she brought him to some of the survivors who were, who were able to be led to safety by him and said, is this the man who helped you? And they said, yeah, exactly, that's him. And there's the red bandana. And then sometime later, they did find his remains near the command post, somewhere near the South Tower. A few days before 9-11 on Labor Day, Weekend, he was visiting his his mother and father for what they said was a rather unusually sort of subdued mood. He told his mother he had a feeling that he was going to be a part of something big, that he had a role or a job to do. And Peggy Noonan writes, courage comes from love. I would only quibble just a bit with that. I would also argue that it takes courage to love, to lay your life down for someone, to say your interests are more important than mine. Love comes, if you will, from that red bandana of courage. Maybe you are standing on the edge of your future this morning. You're standing on that borderline. Understand that that borderline is not the place of victory. You really haven't gone there yet if you're still there, if you're stuck there. You've got to cross over the edge. You've got to move beyond it. And so the question I think that comes to me, even as I read Joshua chapter 1 this morning, is will I, will I stay stuck or will I move forward with courage? Let today. Be that new beginning for you. Move forward in faith. Let go of the past. Embrace God's promises for the future. Be aware every single moment of your life of his presence with you, and then take a step forward in obedience, leaving those old ways behind, leaving behind the fears and anxieties and the what-ifs. Take risks based on the promise of God. And every single day, live in love with courage, the way Jesus did. Let's pray.
Well, Father, thank you for all that has happened in our service today. Our worship, our celebration of baptism, our opportunity, Father, to interact with your word and to be challenged by it. And Father, to be men and women of courage who live in love like Christ. Before we close our service with a song, which also is our response, take just a moment in a silent interaction between you and God to let him help you to be aware of where you are and where he wants you to be and what it will take for you with courage to take that next step, to move off the edge, to get off the border, and to move into embracing all the fullness that God has for you. And right now, let him seal whatever that is in your heart. Let your prayer, and now let our song of response form a part of us moving forward in faith for all that God has for us, we pray. In Jesus' name.